I think I was about eight or nine years old. It was sometime in that third grade year, and we were attending this really large charismatic church in Kansas City, and of course, in that style of worship, it could get really emotional at times. And I remember looking around this huge sanctuary full of all these people and seeing all of these adults so moved by what was happening there, so open and in tune with something. And as I stood there in the middle of that moment, I remember saying to God or, or to myself, there is something here that I don't really understand. Something all these adults seem to get that I don't get. God, help me to get it when I grow up. It was really this simple passing moment in one worship service on one Sunday and a lifetime of worshiping every Sunday. And yet it was a moment, a prayer that has been etched into my soul ever since. There is something here something more than what I understand. Help me to get it when I grow up. And I wonder sometimes if that's how the disciples sort of felt around Jesus. You know, his teachings, they kept stirring his, their imaginations in ways they'd never experienced before. All these parables after parables, trying to open them up to new ideas about God. It made them ask, different questions about where God was and, and how God worked. And in parable after parable, it made them start to recognize that there was something more to this God than what they understood. And then, of course, there's all those stories of healings. Crowds of people would gather around Jesus to be made well, and somehow some of them were. It didn't really make any sense it couldn't even always be predicted. There was no formula for it. But in some unexplainable way, something profound was being restored in people. And if, if that wasn't enough, then one day, just before our reading in Matthew 14 today, Jesus had taken the five measly loaves of bread and the four fish, or the two fish they had between them, and he had used it to somehow feed 5,000 people. I mean, did the bread just start growing out of the ground or what? Or was Jesus' willingness to share in the face of great need just contagious? Maybe it started inspiring everybody else to sharing so that when it came down to it, this massive crowd realized, you know what? They have more than enough when they're willing to pull all their resources together. Either way, that kind of generosity is pretty miraculous, people sharing like that. And I imagine the disciples are once again just sort of taken back by what they're experiencing and seeing around them. There is something here, something more than I understand. Help me to understand it. In high school, I kind of prided myself as being the sort of super Christian of my class. 
In fact, long before becoming a pastor or even really thinking about it, there were a few kids in my senior class that would on occasion call me Reverend Fillingham because they knew that I liked to talk about God. In fact, I was pretty sure I understood Jesus and God better than most people. And, you know, my classmates needed to know why they were wrong and I was right because Well, you know, arguing theology with other kids in high school is really one of the best ways to be popular, right? (laughs) Well, if I couldn't be popular, at least I could be right. And that's what I tried really hard to do. I tried to do things right and to get my ideas about God right and to help other people know what was right and what was wrong. And I wasn't quite as obnoxious as that sounds, but I definitely look back at some of the things I said and did in high school and and just cringe a little bit. I, I think it was when I was in college that I came across a passage in Philippians chapter three where Paul talks about how he had done everything right. He had followed the law perfectly. He crossed every religious T. He dotted every moral I. And now, now he's come to consider it all rubbish. Trash, he actually calls it, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. I've given up trying to be righteous on my own, Paul writes. Instead, I'm trusting in God's goodness. And then he goes on to write some words that resonated so deeply with my own longing. I want to know Christ, he says. Not that I've already obtained all that that entails, but I press on toward that goal. I want to know Christ. And as I read those words in college, I remember thinking back to all the ways I had tried so hard to be right. And I remember my soul saying, this is you, Chris. This has always been you. All that you've done to be right and to get it right is really rubbish compared to a deeper knowing of Christ. And so with Paul, I have prayed those words over and over again in the last 20 years. I want to know Christ. Not that I have already obtained it, because I haven't, but I press on toward that goal. It's another version of the same prayer I prayed in the third grade. There is something more here, something I still don't understand. God, help me to get it as I grow up. Well then, of course, you know, I went on to seminary where I began to discover how much I do not actually know and where the cracks in my theology began to spring leaks, so much that I thought I understood, so much I depended on to know that I was right began to fall apart. I think it was a bit like being in the boat with the disciples that night. In Matthew chapter 14, Matthew says that the boat was battered because the wind was contrary. And let's just say that the hot air coming out of some of my professors could be a little contrary at times. Actually, to be fair, 
the professors I had were quite fantastic, but the boat of my confidence, the boat of what I depended on to know that Jesus and the Bible and, the, and God were all what I had understood them to always be, it was getting battered by the winds of new ideas and battered by the winds of different interpretation, and battered by the winds of science and historical evidence. And there was a time when I wasn't sure the boat of my faith would keep afloat anymore. In fact, I remember in my second semester of seminary calling Jessie on the phone. We were engaged at that time, and she was still in college here in Missouri. I was down in seminary in Texas, And I remember over the phone telling her about this and saying so much that I have depended on to know that Christianity is true is coming apart for me. So much, I I don't even know if I'm a Christian anymore. I imagine that was a pretty scary thing for her to hear, her fiancé say from 500 miles away. But I kept navigating these winds as best as I could. And it took some real time, months that turned into years of asking new questions and looking for new answers. Matthew says that by the time Jesus came to those disciples walking on the water, that boat had gone a long distance from land and the waves had been battering it all into the deep into the night, hour and hour went on until the last watch of the night. And no doubt, those disciples, they were struggling out there. They were hoping to find some solid ground again. That's what it's like when what you thought about God and what you have believed to be true for so long starts to be slowly come apart for you. Wave after wave of doubts begin to crash over your soul. And so you try to make sense of it all. And maybe you do one of two things that are pretty common. Some people will just start tossing out that old cargo of faith in order to try to stay afloat. Others will find new truths to plug the leaks, different ways of balancing the cargo of faith that will help their boat begin to navigate these different waters. I've actually done a little bit of both myself. Some things I grew up believing to be true about God and about Jesus, I have had to toss overboard. Other things I've learned to hold in new ways. I've started to study more and I understood some of these truths differently than I did before. And all of that work was really rooted in that same prayer from my childhood. There is something here, something more than I understand. Help me to understand it. And so my mind has wrestled and studied and wondered And it has carried me on the sea in some really important ways. In fact, I'd say that the ship I ride on most days now is a whole lot more seaworthy than the ship of my teenage years or the ship of my young adult years because asking hard questions and looking for some answers and having mentors and studying and thinking deeply about faith and looking for some better answers All of it can make the ship of your faith stronger if you will keep sailing. All of it 
will grow the bow of your soul deeper if you don't give up navigating in those waters. And all of it has helped me to find ways through some dark hours of night, and it's kept me afloat in some scary storms. And still, I have to admit that this ship has its limits. Because you see, when it comes down to it, God cannot fully be navigated by any one ship. God cannot be reduced to any set of propositions or statements of belief. Yes, they are important. They are absolutely essential. Teaching and knowing our theology, they will keep us afloat. They will give us something to stand on in the sea of life and faith, and they will help you float out into the mystery of the divine life. But the thing is, God is not actually known through logic nearly as much as through presence. Matthew says that in those last hours of the night, after the disciples had been fighting the wind and the waves for so long, Jesus came walking out to them on the sea. And of course, they didn't know it was him. It was just this presence out there in the darkness, out there on the waters. And so Jesus began to call to them, do not be afraid, It is I, or in the original Greek, ego ami, literally, I am. In other words, in that dark night across the waters, the disciples hear the same divine name that Moses heard in a cloud up on Mount Sinai. I am. Jesus calls from across the waters. Now, none of that would have made any sense. It still doesn't, does it? The disciples can't make sense of it. But just like Paul longs to know Christ and will press on, Peter, there in the boat, longs to know that presence. If it is you, God, if it is you, Christ, tell me to come to you. And Jesus does. And so Peter does what's probably the scariest thing possible and the most courageous thing a soul can do. Peter steps off the solid surface of the boat into the waters. Peter steps out of that boat of confidence and certainties unto the churning waves of mystery and uncertainty, all in order to press onwards toward that presence that was calling him. Of course, you know what happens after that. When Peter gets out there and he begins to see the wind, he becomes frightened and he begins to sink. And you know, it's kind of easy for us to belittle Peter for his fear, but I think it's what any of us would do in the face of all of that. And then... Jesus grabs him by the hand and pulls him back up as he sinks and speaks those famous words, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You see, the story in Matthew 14, it's about believing and doubting. 
faith and uncertainty. And the question that Jesus asked Peter is really the question that God is asking all of us in the face of our own uncertainties. Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? I know that God asks it of me. You see, I'm still praying that same prayer that I've prayed since I was eight or nine. And all that I know for sure is that there is so much more to this depths of God's goodness and love and presence and mystery than I understand. And, And so there are weeks and there are months every year of my life where my soul comes back and prays again, God, help me to understand. I want to know Christ. Only the thing is, I also really want some solid answers. Something I can ride comfortably on without much struggle. And looking for those solid answers, well, they tend to keep me in the boat of status quo faith. But over time... It happens again and again. I grow restless in that boat. And then something, some voice, some churning of my soul, it starts to call to me and it invites me to step out into the waters again. But when I step out, all I can see is darkness and wind and waves. And so I I begin to sink. And Christ again and again reaches down and grabs me and love and helps me back into the boat. But at some point, the story repeats itself back and forth. It, It has in so many seasons of my life. A deep longing for God. It drives me to risk stepping out of the boat And then uncertainties and doubts and fears in the face of unspeakable mystery, it sinks me again. Maybe you've experienced that too. When the old answers are no longer enough. When they don't add up for you in the same way. Or when the storms of life feel like a headwind and no matter how hard you paddle, you just can't seem to get anywhere anymore. Or maybe when the night just is growing long and the restlessness in your soul is taking over and you want something more, but the uncertainty of it all is just so much. We cannot always make sense of this life of faith. But I am convinced that the presence calling to our soul from across the waters is no phantom voice. It is the calling of Christ, inviting you to step into the unknown and trust that love itself will take you by the hand. That's what I've been working on, learning and trusting in these last few years of my own faith journey, that at the core of that voice calling is love itself. That out there in the unknown mystery of darkness where the winds are strong and the emptiness seems so great, it's not a black emptiness, but actually there is an eternal, unending love that is reaching out through it all, calling to you, calling to me, calling to us all. And, And this love, it will not leave us alone. 
Love will not let you sink. Love is the presence calling you and calling me and asking us to trust enough to step out of the boat and come. Amen.